Hebrews 20.20, increment 38, Ugar Angelois. Not to angels would be the phrase we use today. We'll be going to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, very shortly. We'll open with a word of prayer. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you today that happy are the people whose God is the Lord. We're grateful today to be in Christ, to be hid with Christ in God, and to have assurance of a future in which Jesus Christ, our Lord, will be ruling with grace and kindness and equity. So we commit ourselves to you today. We entrust our souls to you, a faithful creator. We commit our spirits to you to be taught of you. We give you our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We also want to pray, and I want to pray specially today for Pastor Scott Warren, a faithful communicator of the word. Pastor Warren has recently undergone surgery, and we pray, Father, for his full recovery and that you'll strengthen him with might in the inner man and bring his outer man to a full recovery. And as we're praying, we pray also for many who will hear this message, who have been enduring health crises or health trials for some time. We pray that you will pour out your spirit with a spirit of healing and that you'll also pour out your spirit to make us all the more attentive to what we're about to listen to even now. In Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews 2.5, the PT has moved from his first exhortation to exposition again. This establishes a pattern of oscillation that can be detected throughout the treaties, an oscillation between exposition and exhortation. Hebrews is a not-quite-symmetrical homily or sermon. The scales tip slightly toward exhortation, as Hebrews 13.22 will say at the close of this sermon this word of exhortation. However, exposition is the indispensable basis for his encouragement and his impartation of incentive to the readers and hearers. As he has largely based his exposition in Hebrews 1, 5 to 14 on the Psalms, the PT now returns to a particular piece of another psalm on which he proceeds in the style of what is known as a homiletical midrash, a rabbinical or Jewish rabbinical way of teaching, a kind of a commentary or explanation on a passage demonstrated in a sermon, also known, therefore, as a homiletical midrash. He is still exhibiting 
the superiority of the son and of the word God spoke with finality in a son over the angels and the word spoken through them. Again, he's still exhibiting the superiority of the son over angels. Angelology, a branch of theology, still travels throughout this passage along with Christology, the word of Christ specifically. Another aspect of theology, Christology. Moreover, Christology takes on a decidedly anthropological emphasis here. So we're now moving into a realm of anthropology, the study of man or the study of humanity. The biblical study of anthropology is quite different from studies of anthropology that are often offered in universities today. Christology, then, in our passage 2.5 and following, takes on a decidedly anthropological twist, an emphasis beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2. As the homily progresses, this homily we call Hebrews, the pastor-teacher, pastor-theologian, retains and strengthens the eschatological orientation that's characteristic of this entire treatise or epistle, even to the end where he speaks of a city that is to come. We look for such a city, for here we have no continuing city, whether it's Rome, Jerusalem, New York City, Paris. Here we have no continuing city. So we have eschatology, another branch of theology, Christology, angelology, anthropology. The world to come, or future world as we see it defined in Hebrews 2.5 and Hebrews 1.6, is related to the city that is to come in Hebrews 13.14, also Hebrews 11.10. The world to come or future world is one way of describing the eschatological future. Future world belongs not to AI, artificial intelligence or robots. It belongs to humanity with the mind of Christ, not to robots programmed with human thinking, but people in whom the mind of Christ is operative. Another way to imagine that world is to view it as the city to come, the city that is coming. The world will be a cosmopolis. You might not even find that one in the dictionary. Cosmopolis, C-O-S-M-O-P-O-L-I-S, is a 
pregnant term that can be found in the writings of Bernard Lonergan and Robert M. Duran, whose present series on the Trinity in history is extraordinary and worth studying by every theologian, and that means every Christian. It will be helpful to us as we attempt to imagine the future world, and we should imagine the future world, in which the kingdom of God will have fully come, and in which the will of God is fully accomplished in and for every inhabitant of that future world. This is also known as the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home. Let me tell you something. Righteousness is not at home in this world. It's in the home of some hearts of people in this world. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place in which righteousness, the saving act of God, is at home everywhere and throughout. In fact, we're finding many references to First and Second Peter cropping up here in correlation with Hebrews. And I think someday I'll have to just take out a message or two on the remarkable parallelisms between Peter's writings and the writings of the PT in Hebrews. Here we have Hebrews 2.5. My translation so far, it says, For you see, it is not two angels. Every once in a while, we wake up in the morning with a thought on our mind, and I always say, let's follow that thought if it's from the scriptures. The other morning, I woke up with the simple phrase, not two angels. So I got up, and even before having coffee, went to the computer and checked this out. For you see, it is not two angels. U angelois, not angels. That God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. This gives further weight to the eschatological orientation of Hebrews. A world to come. The PT has been speaking of this future world, he says in 2.5, and we find that specifically in Hebrews 1.6, when he speaks of it saying, and again, when he, God, leads his firstborn, Jesus, into the world, meaning future world, he says, worship him, all of God's angels. And that means the father there refers to his son as God, and commands all the angels to worship God, his son. But this son of God is also man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And he is the son of man about which Psalm 8 speaks. The son of God is the firstborn of future worlds. He is the firstborn from the dead, as we see in Colossians 1.18 and in Revelation 1.5. All the angels 
and listen carefully to this. All the angels worship the man Christ Jesus. That's a very wonderful phrase, the man Christ Jesus. Anthropos Christos Jesu. Anthropos Christos Jesus. Notice anthropos, anthropology, Christos, Christology. Anthropology and Christology are conflated here in our passage as they are in that wonderful title of 1 Timothy 2.5, the man, anthropos, Christ, Christos, Jesus, Jesus. It is here in Hebrews and in that title, the man Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2.5, that we see the conflation or the blending of Christology and anthropology. Remember, we're doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews. Future world is under the feet of the man, Christ Jesus, whom we've already seen very clearly to be God. All the angels are in subjection to him. Another Petrine reference, or reference to Peter's epistle, 1 Peter 3.22. Angels are subjected to him. Compare 1 Peter 3.22 then with Hebrews 1.6. Again, illustrative of a parallel of the Petrine writings with the writings of the PT in Hebrews. The man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and all of humanity. No angels occupy this position. That's the point that the Hebrew writer is making. The only mediator between God and humanity is Jesus Christ. And so it's God and Jesus Christ and humanity, then angels in future world. There were a lot of doctrines floating around back then and maybe now that put other mediators between God and humanity, some of them angelic. Not so. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Christ Jesus, who is also God. No angels occupy this mediatorial position. Not to angels. What I hear whispered in my closet, I shout from the housetops. Not to angels. Not to angels. Has God subjected the world to come? Instead, as a certain section of a certain psalm indicates, he has subjected this future world to man, and specifically to the Son of Man. All of the humanity of future world. Now, this teaching today, you might think is purely eschatological, but it has a dramatic bearing upon our present situation right now. June of 2020. Hebrews 2020 is the time to see with 2020 vision Jesus crowned with glory and honor.
Obviously, there are many others clamoring for attention today. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. All of the humanity of future world will be a resurrected humanity. And that is, of course, with the exception of those who are alive and remain when the Lord comes with salvation, they will go from this mortal body to an immortal body. They will put on immortality, even as dead bodies of those who have passed away, which are corruptible, will put on incorruption. Jesus called the inhabitants of future world, and here's an interesting word, ice angeloi or isangeloi please take note of this word i s a n g e l o i in the english transliteration it's only used once in the whole bible and it's used by jesus in luke 20 and verse 36 i call them ice angels he's talking about not i c e but i s a isa Angelos. Nowhere else in scripture is this word isangeloi used. The human inhabitants of future world can no longer die, he said. They are isangelic, mostly translated like the angels or as the angels. They are like the angels in the regard that they cannot die. They can't die. I remember a movie once in which there was a man named Free, and there was a battle in the battlefield, and the commander told a young recruit, go ride with Free, because he can't get killed. (laughs) It was a a great line. So the guy says, why do you want me to ride with free? And the commanding officer said, because he can't get killed. He can't get killed. We can't die in future world. The human inhabitants of future world, he said, can no longer die. In this regard, they are isangeloi. They are like the angels. However, it is they and not angels who are called the sons of God since they are sons of the resurrection. That's all in Luke 20 and verse 36. You can study the whole thing in the chapter Luke of, of Luke, Luke 20 and also Matthew 22 and Mark 12. However, These human beings are called sons of God as angels were called sons of God in another regard. But it is the human sons of God that will have the rule in future world. So this remarkable verse comes from a pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. It means a, a section in which an episode is contained in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three to 33, if you want to study it yourself. Mark 12, 18 to 27, Luke 20, 27 to 40. And I prefer that whole recording there. It's an episode in which Jesus is engaged in sharp 
debate with the skeptical group called, or sect called, the Sadducees. In the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the sons of God, or in Hebrew, Benicha Elohim, was a term applied to beings which the Greek text interpreted to be angels. So angels had the title Benicha Elohim. According to one of the renditions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Deuteronomy 32.8 reads like this. When the Most High divided the nations, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Benicha Elohim. The Septuagint, the Greek text, as usual, translated sons of God as the angels of God. The point is that the nations of this present world are declared to be subjected to angels. Now, the PT's homiletic medrash on Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is the Septuagint 8, 5 through 7. Notice that. Psalm 8, 4 through 6 in most of your Bibles. Greek text, Psalm 8, 5 through 7. Is to emphasize that it is not to angels or angelic sons of God that God subjects future world or has subjected future world because somebody's already there. Rather, he has subjected future world to the isangelic human sons of God who are sons of the resurrection. And who live without ever dying. Because Jesus the son of man lives. And can never die again. Romans 6 9 to 11. John 14 19. 1 Corinthians 15 22. Romans 5 18. These are all people who live without dying. Because they died with Christ. And were made alive in him. The sons of God are the sons and daughters, we, we should say. Gender is notwithstanding in that term, huioi. The sons of God are the sons and daughters of the resurrection. Capitalize the word resurrection. They are isangelic in two ways. First, they cannot die, for they have died once. When Christ died, Colossians 3.3, they were crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. And they will have been bodily resurrected when future world comes. They will have been bodily resurrected for incorruptibility and immortality. They can never die again. Now, don't worry, they won't want to either. In this world, we can die, and sometimes we want to die. In the next world, we can't die, and we won't want to. Things will be much better. I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 to 53, Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Incorruptible, immortal bodies of glory. Second, 
They are like the angels, ice angeloi. They're like the angels. We are like the angels then. In two ways, therefore. First, they cannot die, for they died when Christ died. Second, a world is subjected to them. Like the angels who had this world subjected to them, we are like the angels in that we have a world subjected to us as human beings. The next world, the future world. Paul recognized this well. In fact, he emphasized it greatly when he said to the Corinthians, don't you know that we will judge, that is, rule over angels? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, you can read it. The word judge in that context there, crino, means to rule over, not to judge in the sense of to condemn, but to rule over. That sense of the word crino also pertains in Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus speaks of a universal regeneration. Hey, palingenesia, in which his 12 disciples will be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In every and all cases, it is human beings who have the status of rulers. In future world, the rulers are human beings who have undergone a radical and permanent transformation by resurrection or by transconfiguration if in fact they were part of the generation that is alive on the earth when Jesus comes with salvation. They won't die but be transconfigured into a glorified body. That's what is what Paul means in First Thessalonians. He's not talking about a secret rapture where a few million people get hauled out of here. He's talking about a transformation that happens at the parousia to those who are alive and remain, while those who have died will be raised from the dead. First, now, among the ruled, if we're the rulers, who's the ruled? Among the ruled, will be the angels. The sons of the resurrection are not evangelic. We call Christians today evangelical. Some Christians call themselves that. Other Christians call themselves other things. But we will not then be evangelic. We will be isangelic. There will be no need to evangelize people in future world. As the scripture says, no one will be saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, says Yahweh. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. We find that in Hebrews 8.11. In Hebrews 8.11. And it's Jeremiah 31.34. We won't be evangelic, 
we will be isangelic. Agreeing with Jeremiah 31:34, quoted in Hebrews 8:11, is Habakkuk 2:14. Listen to this verse: For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. The knowledge of the Lord's glory right now can only be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. From his face emanates the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to some who are continuing in his word, who see him. Then in future world, all will see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God because it will fill the earth. That's what Habakkuk 2.14 says. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. And the Lord's glory is Jesus Christ. And the Lord's glory is salvation. In Isaiah 40 and verse 5, the Hebrew text says they will see the glory of the Lord. The Greek text says they will see the salvation or experience the salvation of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is Jesus. The salvation of the Lord or the salvation of God is Jesus. To see God's glory is to see God's salvation is to see Jesus. Again, Psalm 72, 18 and 19, which the Septuagint translation has as Psalm 71, 18 and 19. It says, praised is the Lord God of Israel, who alone does wonders. That's reminiscent of Hebrews 2, 4. And praised is the name of his glory. Through age of the age and all the earth shall be filled with his glory. May it be so. May it be so. Amen means may it be so. If the kingdom of God is coming, we say, may it be so. Let it come. If the will of God on earth is going to be done as it is in heaven, we say, Father, let it be done. May it be so. We say, Lord, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's the same thing. For Jesus to come is for the will of God to be done on earth, for the kingdom of God to come. In future world, then, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord God of Israel. And that's Jesus, the name of his glory. The name of God's glory is Jesus. And that glory will be resplendent everywhere in all the universe. Then the sons of the resurrection, the sons and the daughters of the resurrection, not the revolution, not the insurrection, the sons and the daughters of the resurrection. They will not be evangelic. They will be isangelic because they can never die. And because a world will be subject to them. Somebody might say, well, if this present world is subjected to angels, why is the world, especially in 2020, so whack? W-A-C-K, whack. We used to call it whacked out. There are many other words that could describe the condition of the present world. 
Well, the answer to that question, why the world in 2020 is so whack, has to do in large part with angelology. For the angelic sons of God, who have rule over the nations, have been to court, according to Psalm 82 and verse 2, Septuagint 81 2. And there, God, the most high God, charged the little gods, angelic beings who rule the nations, with judging unfairly and with favoring the wicked. Consequently, guess what? We wrestle in this world. In this world, we wrestle. In the next world, we rest. In this world, we wrestle. In the next world, we rest because there will be a sabbatical rest forever. We wrestle not in this world against enemies made of blood and flesh, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen realm. Against mighty powers governing this benighted world, a world that has come into the darkness of night. And against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Look at Ephesians 6.12 sometime or 6.10 through 18 and couple that with Romans 13.11 and 12, really 13.11 to 14. This present age is an evil age. Galatians 1.4. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's hamartiology coupled with soteriology in order to deliver us from this present evil age, not from hell, but from this present evil age. This present world, cosmos, is under the sway of the evil one. The whole world is. 1 John 5.19 Going to Christ outside the camp which we're urged to do in the climactic phase of Hebrews is to bear his reproach. Hebrews 13, 13. And it's the same as no longer being conformed to this age. Be no longer conformed to this age. Why? Because it's an evil age. Romans 12, 1 and 2, coupled with Galatians 1, 4. And this age is characterized by an attitude and disposition of arrogance. As 12.3 of Hebrews, rather 12.3 of Romans says. Jesus said, come to me for I am meek and lowly of heart, humble. To be conformed into his image is to be conformed into the image of humility. Not arrogance, self-absorbed, self-deceived, self-justifying, self-entitled, all about self. Now, people don't see Jesus because they're too busy looking at selfies of themselves. 
Now, Christians have to realize that in one sense, we are reigning in life, in, even in this world, reigning in life. That doesn't mean we're reigning over nations, but it does mean that we're ruling over the flesh and sin. They are no longer ruling over us, or they don't have to anyways. We walk in the spirit. We don't fulfill the ambitions of the flesh. And those that are belonging to Christ have crucified the flesh with its, uh, with its affections, its misdirected ambitions and desires, Galatians 5.24, as well as Galatians 5.16. But we are not yet reigning, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, as we will be in future worlds. In this world, we have tribulation, John 16, 33. In this world, we are embattled. And much of the Christian population today persecuted, even today, made the objects of a genocidal murderous intention. And I guarantee There aren't any marches going on about the hundreds of thousands of Christians who are being displaced and murdered across the world today. Christians have to realize that in one sense we're reigning in life, but we are not yet reigning as we will be in future world. In this world, we wrestle against angelic rulers under the sway of the evil one. Even Paul got a little sarcastic once in a while. I've been known to. Jim is with me today, and I've known him for many years. Jim McClory, and I've never known him to be sarcastic. He's a very kind-hearted man. And if he were a little sarcastic in our conversation, I know he's doing it in love. Paul was doing it in love too, but Paul had some oozing sarcasm to direct to the Corinthian saints. That alone is an oxymoron. He said to them who were of the fully preteristic brand of saints in Corinth, we could say, and I'm just saying that in tongue in cheek to some of my brothers and sisters who call themselves full preterists. Nothing left for God to do with me. Well, Paul got a little sarcastic to the fully preteristic saints in Corinth who believed themselves always already to be reigning in future world. This is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 4 a This passage is splendid. It's a wonderful, powerful, passage he says to them already you're full already you are rich meaning with the wealth of future world already you are reigning you are reigning i see without us that is without me without sylvanus without timothy without my apostolic missionary friends you're reigning wait you're reigning without us we're not in this Then he said, oh, how I wish you were reigning in future world. And not without us. 
That is, so we could rule and reign with you. I wish it were true. It's not. But then he said quite seriously, for I think God has exhibited us apostles or presented us apostles as the final act in a gladiatorial show and a theater of gladiators around which there's an arena of Roman citizens and Roman aristocrats and maybe even the Caesar. He said, you know what? We were billed as the last act to die spectacularly before an audience, not only of men or human beings, but also angels. Read that. First Corinthians four, nine. I think God has exhibited us apostles as the final act in a gladiatorial arena to be condemned to die a spectacular death in front of an audience of angels and human beings. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. That sound like future world? We better get it straight, just what world we're living in right now. One in which we die. And what world we will be living in in the future. One in which we can never die. Better make a distinction between the two. Now here I want to insert something that's been with me for a long time as an insight. A targumic or a targum of Deuteronomy 32:39. Now the targums were Jewish translations with exposition. We could say with almost like a midrashic commentary that went with them. So they were expanded translations, but they are remarkable in their insight. In fact, the word the word in John is more likely to have come from the targums than from some Greek source. Listen carefully. First of all, Deuteronomy 32 39 in the song of Moses. The usual translation reads like this. And I'll quote, in fact, from the very excellent Holman Christian standard Bible. I find that to be reliable in many places in most places. He says, see now that I alone am he. There is no God, but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. Now, Targum Neophyte, that's T-A-R-G-U-M and Neophyte, N-E-O-F-I-T-I, a fairly recently discovered Targum translation of Deuteronomy 32-39 reads like this, and it's found in John Ronning's book on the Targums, on page 191. Listen very carefully to this. This, when I read this when we were doing the Gospel of John a few years ago, stuck with me. Deuteronomy 32, 39, in the Targum Neophyte, reads like this. See now that I, I in my word, that's the Aramaic memra, I in my word, that's the Greek Logos, I in my word am he. God says, listen, I am he and demonstrated to be God 
more in my word than any other way. So let's say it again. See now that I, I in my word am he. And there is no God besides me. I am he who, listen carefully to this. I am he who puts to death the living in this world. And who brings to life the dead in the world to come. That's a phenomenally insightful commentary and expanded translation of Deuteronomy 32:39. Notice in this Targum that God announces himself to be who and what he is in his word. Do you want to see and hear who God is? And what he is, then you see who and what he is in his word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. The man. Christ Jesus. This has the same symmetry. Death in this world, life in the next world. This has the same symmetry. As Paul's twofold declaration in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that the King James Version got right. For as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. All in Adam die in this world. All in Christ will be made alive in the world to come. That is, all that die in Adam will be made alive in Christ in future world. We happen to be living in a time when mighty powers governing this benighted, gloomy world are being challenged. Challenged by new insights in the scripture. Challenged by those who truly understand the values found in the scriptures grace values it is urgent now more than ever that we take up and put on the full armor from god as it's called metaphorically in ephesians 6:13 and above all the shield of faith The shield of faith above all means that trusting in the Lord with all of our heart is a universal mandate that covers all situations. There's never a situation when the shield of faith isn't required. Faith becomes the specific topic of Hebrews 11.1 all the way through 12.3 and really a theme that runs throughout Hebrews. Faith. The shield of faith As Ephesians 6.16 calls it, it's only by that shield of faith that the fiery scud missiles of the evil one are quenched and extinguished and put out. The folly and stupidity of people who are today hating one another and engaging in bitter hatred one against another. That folly is about to come to an end. Don't be afraid of it. It's about to come to the end. 
for they shall proceed no further. And who am I talking about? I'm not talking about any particular race, as it's called, wrongly. There is no race but the human race. I'm talking about people who, instead of seeing Jesus, and instead of having love for the whole human race, have instead a bitter hatred called resentment. They will proceed no further. Their time will come to an end. It can't survive. It can't thrive. We live in a time when invisible powers are being challenged. And that's why the world is so whack in 2020. Millions have neglected such a great salvation that we've been talking about here. That is only available through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Millions having neglected such a great salvation and who have not put on the helmet of salvation. Are ignorant of this invisible conflict. They don't even know there is an invisible conflict and they call themselves enlightened people. They're enlightened by science. They're so enlightened as to look upon Christians as people with childlike and misguided beliefs. We are wrestling. Not against blood and flesh. And those who are ignorant of the invisible conflict are wrestling against blood and flesh. And falling under the powerful influence of the evil one. While they virtue signal left and right in a sickening, self-righteous, fearful, guilt-ridden spirit. They are wrestling against blood and flesh. They are under the influence of the evil one. You can tell how someone's under the influence of the evil one. They will tell you in one way or another through subtle suggestion or through certain signaling and gesturing that they are good. (laughs) They're under the influence of the evil one. I like what Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees are the self-righteous people all over the world today. Then you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven with self-righteousness. Now. The angels. have been placed over the nations. But God charged those angels, a certain group of them, with folly. They blew their term. Their term is a waste. Their term in office. It is a strange and remarkable thing to say, but I'll say it anyways. Future world, which will be subjected to humanity, 
will be a vast improvement over present world which was subjected to angels. The angels that are ruled by the prince of the power of the air will one day be ruled by God's son and by human beings in solidarity with Jesus. Future world subjected to humanity will be a vast improvement over present world which was subjected to angels. It will be an immeasurably vast improvement not because humanity will be self-improved but because all of humanity will be alive with Jesus Christ's own resurrected life and will be ruling with equity and grace. And I use that word rule advisedly because it's not what you think. Especially if you read Matthew 20, 25 to 28. In future world, all is comprised of Christ. Christ, the glory of God, will constitute the new creation itself. Jesus is the name of the glory of God, and the glory of God is God's salvation. The ultimate state of the new creation, therefore, is called soteria, salvation, soteria. So one may ask, well, if all of humanity, if you're talking about universal salvation among human beings, if all of humanity will be ruling in Christ, who will they rule over? How about to begin with an innumerable company of angels? An incalculable number of angels. All right, let's continue our exposition just for a moment by proceeding to Hebrews 2.6, where the PT moves once again to, to the Psalms, this time to Psalm 8, and more specifically to Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 through 7. It's a portion of the Psalm which by Gezerashawa, taking a common word, has significant similarity to Psalm 110.1 or LXX 109.1. Remember, Psalm 110.1, LXX 109.1, was quoted in Hebrews 1.13 at the culmination of the Florilegium. In Psalm 110.1, LXX 109.1, we see Jesus seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, God, having made purification for sins. In, it is in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, and I'm looking forward to this, we see Jesus. It is in Psalm 8 where we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor and where we will culminate our Corona series, but not our Hebrews 2020 series. It is here where we soon conclude our Corona series within our Hebrews series, but by no means Will it be in those couple of verses that we're going to look at the end of our Hebrews 2020 series? Hebrews 2, 
Verse 6, my translation. Now somewhere, somebody said. The somewhere is Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 to 7. The someone is the Holy Spirit through David, as we find out from Psalm 8, 1. Somewhere, someone solemnly testifies, saying, What is man that you remember him? What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned for him. Now the Gingrich lexicon says that means to visit him for the purpose of bringing salvation. Who is the son of man that you would visit him for the purpose of saving him? You made him inferior to the angels. Look at that. You made him inferior to the angels for a short while. He's still citing Psalm 8. You crowned him with glory and honor. The Latin there is gloria et honore coronasti eum. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands, says some translations. I think the right ones. And then 8a says, you subjected all things under his feet. Remember under his feet, Psalm 1101? LXX 1091. Some translations add, and set him over the works of your hands. Some don't. I don't know what your translation that you may be reading says. But that set him over the works of, his ha- of your hands is actually included in the Septuagint translation of the psalm and perhaps should be included. I think it should be included in Hebrews 2.7 especially given the later reference to the works of God, erga, the works of God in Hebrews 4.3 and 4.4. And they have reference there to the Genesis 2.2 passage in connection with Psalm 95.11, LXX 94.11, which the writer again brilliantly coalesces into a phenomenal exhortation. But for now, Let's just consider that and set him over the works of your hands ought to be included in our passage in, in a quotation of Psalm 8. Otherwise, that clause is omitted in some translation. If God permits, we'll continue this exegesis. Now, I plan to do two or three more messages in the Corona series, and I hope you'll listen to this. And we will also have guest speakers. I don't like to really call them guests because they're part of our assembly. They're co-pastors with me. And I've asked Brian Messick, Pastor Brian Messick and Pastor Craig Brown. I asked both of these men if they would do each two messages where I have to be out for a couple of weeks. And therefore they will be speaking. And I haven't, sorry, Jeremy, I haven't talked to you about this, but we may have a slider up on the website to introduce their messages, which will also be put up on the website. And so I'm encouraged and excited to have Pastor Brown and Pastor Messick present a couple of messages. So be looking forward to them, Lord willing, if the Lord permits, they'll be up fairly soon. And I'll make further announcements uh, to this end soon. So thanks for your attentiveness. Amen. <laughs>